My talk this morning, my encouragement, my exhortation to the body of Christ is more of a topical message, and so our topic is the power of your personal testimony. Every one of you that's experienced Jesus Christ in your life, you have one of the strongest apologetics, the strongest defense for your Christian faith because you have had an encounter with a resurrected king and he's changed your life. So we're going to look at two individuals in the New Testament whose lives were dramatically impacted by Jesus and how their testimony was the greatest tool that they had the most effective way of reaching other people was their simple testimony. So let's turn to Mark. I should have grabbed a bulletin because I'm not even sure what verses I put down. It's the... Thank you, Elena. The whole story is in chapter 5, but I want to focus particularly on the testimony We're going to do the same thing with the Samaritan woman, particularly the testimony. So after Jesus had healed this man, changed his life, sitting, clothed, and in his right mind, when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 4. Elena, if you'd like to help me out again, what are the references there? John 4, 28 through 29, and then verse 39. John 4, 28 and 29. The woman then left her water pot. She went her way into the city and said to the men, I love this, come see a man. How simple. Come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Verse 39 And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. How simple and how powerful, how profound. Let's pray. Father, this morning, help us to understand what a personal testimony about our experience with Christ, what that entails. 
Help us to understand that if we do not have a testimony of a changed life, that this morning it can be possible for us to say, I came and I met a man who was the Christ, who told me and looked into my past and saw all the sordid sin and guilt and shame and forgave me and gave me living water. Father, if there's someone today who only knows about Christ but has never experienced a relationship with Christ, come into this place and to illuminate their heart, to convince them and convict them of sin, and for them to turn in faith to trust what Jesus has done. And Father, many of us, if not all of us today, profess faith in Jesus. So today, God, I pray that we would understand that we have a tool at our disposal that we don't have to study, that we don't have to research, that we don't have to have all of our theological ducks in a row, but God, that we know a living Savior who took me out of darkness and brought me into light, who took all of my sin and nailed it to the cross, and I bear it no more. He raised himself from the dead to justify me freely, and now we have a new life in Christ. God, it is so simple but so profound. May we, like Paul, say we know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The power of the cross to change lives. Father, I ask that you would help us today in our own minds how to, to be assured of our salvation and sure of what Christ did for us, and that we can articulate that to lost people confidently. God, that's what we want to accomplish today, and we ask the Holy Spirit to use the Word of God to teach us how to be a solid witness for Christ. We ask this in His name. Amen. Children's Church, go ahead and Head out, or you can stay in here if you want, but our children, we have Children's Church provided for you. Before we go too much into the sermon, I don't normally recognize visitors because I don't like to embarrass people, and I'm not going to point you out, <laughs> but we don't have a big congregation, so you're kind of going to stick out like a sore thumb anyway, <laughs> but... I want to just welcome Lily's granddaughter, and I don't remember your name, so tell us your name. Karina. Karina. But what is exciting to me is that we have Karina here, but we also have Brittany here. Is that correct? And we have Hannah here. And this is new for our church, and I'm excited about it, that we have and I'm sure Krista Faye is excited about it. But for a long time, Krista Faye was the only young lady here. And she was sort of the Lone Ranger. And so you young people, talk to each other after church and say, hey, this is cool. <laughs> and we got Rose here, another young lady. And a lot of these young folks are 
are single and you can hang out and I don't know, I'm not telling you what to do. <laughs> I'm an old man. And that's what's exciting too, Ron, <laughs> is because there's some young families here with kids. Praise the Lord. We've got our family from Indiana who's not going to be here much longer. We're praying that God will reassign you to Utah. <laughs> but they've got young kids, and it's neat to see a church with young people. We've got visitors here this morning with their young family. We've got Kelly with his young family. Am I forgetting anybody else? Okay. Bill and Barb, they've got young teenage boys. <laughs> They're growing up, though, quick, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. But I'm, I'm delighted to see young new faces because you are the hope and you are the future of this church. It's not, not me and us old timers. We want to get you all passing the baton to you. I'm tired of running. No, I'm, I'm running strong. Don't worry about me. I'm not, I'm not going to run out of gas this morning. I was talking to Dennis, though, and that green thing there, that, that, that banner, someone ran by it and it was swinging. And have you ever been parked at a stop sign and the car next to you starts to move and you're starting to mash the brake? Come on, got to get this thing stopped. Lily's <laughs> going, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought the whole church was swaying and moving. And I thought, what did I drink this morning? <laughs> the whole place was moving. And it, no, it was just that, that, that thing on the wall was moving. I hope this isn't an indication of where my sermon's going to go today. Um, turn to Acts chapter twenty. One. So we're still in the book of Acts, but like I said, this is more of a topical address on, on, a, on a personal testimony, the power of a personal testimony. And I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to go back and, and look at how to develop your own personal testimony, how simple it is, and yet how profound it is. So Paul had gone back to Jerusalem. He wants to get to Rome eventually. When he got there, he was instructed to pay the fees of these other four individuals who also had taken a Nazarite vow. They were going to cut their hair. And he's in the temple at this feast. And the feast is almost over. He's almost gotten through unscathed when a group of Jews who saw him in Ephesus with a Gentile, assumed that he brought a Gentile into the temple. And the whole city envelops into a mob riot that's ready to kill the Apostle Paul. They are beating him literally to death. That's their goal. And if God hadn't have intervened, Paul would have died at this occasion. The Roman soldiers come and break this fight up, and they're kicking them off to a barracks or a castle. Archaeologists have discovered this castle. It's right across from the temple mount, right across from the temple uh, area, and they're taking him up the stairs. And they're assuming that he is this rebel rouser, Egyptian, who started a mob a few years ago and had gone out into the desert. And Paul says, no, I'm not that Egyptian. And he speaks Greek to the Roman officer, and he's kind of surprised that he's fluent in Greek. And so Paul starts in verse 38. 
Paul said to him, I am a Jew. I'm in Acts 21, verse 38. He, uh, he says, aren't you the Egyptian? Can you speak Greek? He says, um, no, I'm not. I'm not that assassin. Verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean or obscure city. I implore you, permit me to speak to this people. This was the mob that was ready to kill him. And Paul uses two strong words. If you've got a King James, it says, I beseech you. It is a powerful, powerful word. I implore you, I beseech you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he'd given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and he motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, brethren and fathers, hear my apologia. So you ever heard the word of apologetics? It comes from this Greek word, apologia. Hear my apology. We think of an apology, you're giving a reason for why you've done something. You're giving a defense and you're apologizing, but it's not that quite in the Greek. It has more of the idea of giving a sound reason. Hear my sound reason, my defense. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And he said to them, I am indeed a Jew. It's translated in the New King James, I am indeed a Jew, because in the Greek it's ego I me. It's emphatic. I even myself am a Jew. He's addressing these people who are, were ready to kill him. He uses the Hebrew language. He emphatically says, even I myself indeed am a Jew, born in Tarsus. And brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. He's dropping a name here. And a good reason to do so. Taught according to the strictest group of our father's law. I was zealous toward God. And he uses this comparison. As you all are today. I persecuted this way. To death. Like you're about ready to do to me. Binding and delivering into prison. Both men and women. And also the high priest bears me witness in all the council and the elders for whom I received letters from the brethren and went to Damascus to bring them in chains even who were there at Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and I came near to Damascus about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear or discern the voice of what was spoken to me. I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all the things that are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of the light and, and being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony of all the Jews 
who dwelt there came to me and stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At the same hour, I looked at him and he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will to see the just one and to hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witnesses to all men of what you have seen and heard. I want to just stop there because this is an election to service. Paul is a unique individual. God often does this when he elects or chooses a servant for service. God will use unusual and miraculous means to elect or to choose and single out someone for a ministry. Jesus did this to the twelve. He chose them out of the world so that they might be with him and experience his miraculous dealings with people so that they might see the supernatural, so that they might hear the inside story that the multitudes were not hearing, so that after his death that he might send them. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Now that's not a choosing to salvation, that is an election to service. And he chose them, why? So that they might reach all other. That's what he's doing. And that's why he is choosing and selecting Paul so that he can show himself to him in order that he might go what? To all people. This is exactly what God did with the nation of Israel. God elected a nation of people to be his light and to be his witness to to all nations. So it's important for us to understand this doctrine of election here as it relates to the doctrine of serving and choosing people for a special service. God does unusual means to elect those servants. He did it with Jonah. He used a great fish to swallow him to get his attention. He did this to Isaiah by showing him the glory of the Lord. And now he's doing this to Paul with a blinding light to get his attention to saying, I am singling you out for a ministry. That's not to say that God can't do that for every one of us. That God might just get a hold of you and say, I've got a specific task that I want you to do in your life. That's the kind of God we serve, but that's not what we're going to look at today. So, verse 16. Now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. This is not baptismal regeneration. This is a historical narrative. It's not teaching how someone has their sins washed away. In fact, this verse does indicate how those sins were washed away. It wasn't by the act of baptism. The participle is called a causal participle in the original language. And how are the sins washed away? Well, we're told by this little participle, I-N-G, and it could be translated just as accurately by this word, by. It's the means. Wash away your sins. Be baptized by calling on the name of the Lord. If baptism was a part of regeneration, Paul would have never wrote in the Corinthians and said, God did not call me to baptize. He called me to preach the gospel. So I just want to 
Make sure we're on the same page here. We're not teaching baptismal regeneration this morning. Calling on the name of the Lord. And baptism is a command by Jesus. I don't want to de-emphasize baptism. Baptism is the very first step of obedience and following Jesus Christ as your Savior. And it's exactly what Paul did. But the text here, it's very clear that one is washing away their sins by calling on the name of the Lord. How simple, how easy it is. And Paul wants to get this message across to his Jewish friends. If you have had an experience with Christ, you have a testimony this morning. You have one of the most powerful ways of reaching people. It's an easy way to bridge a gap between the person you're trying to talk to by simply sharing your testimony. This week, I was studying this passage, and I'm always under conviction when I study a passage because I know I've got to live it. If I'm not going to live it, I very not try to preach it. So I've been meditating on this, and there was a co-worker at the school that I'm coaching at, and the lady was a, a, a new coach, um, wasn't from Utah, and I thought, okay, there's a way that I can start to reach her. I'm not from Utah. Found out she was from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest, and we got talking. Began to ask her what she thought of Utah. Well, most people who aren't from Utah have a reaction when they come to Utah. It's a different kind of state, right? Different kind of environment. That opened up a little bit more conversation. So as the conversation began, I said, where did you go to church when you were back in Missouri? And she said, well, I went to a Baptist church. And I really can't find a, a Baptist church now, lo and behold, I told her, I said, you know, I graduated from Temple Baptist Seminary in Chattanooga, Tennessee. She goes, you did? I said, yeah, and I'm a pastor. She says, a Baptist church? I said, well, no. I said, we're not any denomination. I said, but we baptize our folks when they get saved, and we preach the Bible. And she says, well, where's your church at? And so she and I had this conversation, and I asked her about her personal testimony. And she just opened up. And we began to talk about the things of the Lord. It was that easy, just by sharing a little testimony. Now, Paul, he knows how to open that door. He knows how to bridge the gap. These are people who are ready to kill him. These are people who are ready to, to see him beaten to death. And he has a burden for them. Paul was motivated by the love of Christ to reach people. I don't know where I'm at on these, so we're just going to kind of go like this. <laughs> so I'll just sort of paraphrase Romans chapter 1. Paul says, I have a continual sorrow in my heart for my kinsmen. I wished that I were accursed so that I could see them saved. That's a poor paraphrase of Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. But Paul said, I have a broken heart for my people. And I will be willing to testify to them no matter what. If I can bridge that gap, if I can somehow reach them. Now, what were some things that Paul did in order to reach these people in this situation? The first thing he did 
is he addressed them in their language. He didn't speak Greek, even though everybody in the crowd would have understood that. Paul was isolating out his kinsmen according to the flesh and said, I have got a message for you. I'm not against the Jewish culture. I'm not against Jewish law. I'm not trying to do away with Moses. I am one of you. He was identifying with his audience, wasn't he? He implored, he begged them. It's an imperative command. And then he says, will you permit? He says, please permit me to speak to these people. Up on the stairs, waves his hand, begins to speak in the Hebrew language. And what does it say in chapter 22, verse 1 and verse 2? When they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. So we need to learn how to remove those obstacles from our audience. I want to reach that people. I want to show them that I am not all that different from you. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. When you share your testimony, you're talking about your own personal experiences that are common with everybody. Everybody is sort of searching for spiritual answers. Everybody sort of has an idea of what God is like and what God expects and what God requires. The Jews and all other religion of that time had a work salvation. You've got to earn your way into heaven. You've got to do this, this, and this. And you've got to live a strict life. And you think about it, even today, all religions say the same thing. Have you ever talked to an unbeliever who's not a religious person? And you ask them, what do you think God requires to get to heaven? Unreligious people, unspiritual people, they have the same concept. Works. They won't say it like that, but this is what they'll tell you. I think my good is going to outweigh my bad. I think God is fair. God wouldn't send me to hell because I've done all these things. They are not saying they believe in work salvation, but that's in essence what they do believe in. They believe in works. So religious people, irreligious people, all people believe in some type of merit-based system. And Paul is pulling that out from underneath them as a source of security, but he's doing it very, very subtly. He's not just hitting them over the head and saying, you guys... I've got it all wrong, and I've got it right. In fact, he's saying, I used to think the same way you guys are thinking. I was in the same boat. I'm right along with you. I understand. I identify with you completely. I'm a Jew. I was raised in this city. I was brought up under the foot of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the well-known rabbi. Josephus says that when Gamaliel died, the law died with him. When the disciples were arrested and they were going to beat them, Gamaliel is the one who stood up and he says in Acts chapter, I can't remember, back in the beginning of the book of Acts, he says, this guy was respected by all the Jews and they listened to the advice of Gamaliel. So he says, I was brought up. A lot of expositors actually think that Paul was somehow related to Gamaliel. The word brought up means to be nourished up. It means to be cherished, means to be cared for. It may have been that Paul was actually related to Gamaliel and studied at his feet because he was a part of that family. 
And then he says, I was trained of the strictest sect of our father's law. The Greek word akrabos there means to be very, very rigid. It means very, very accurate. It means line upon line. It means precept upon precept. He said, I towed the line. I was a Jew of all the Jews. In fact, in his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, he says, if anybody thinks that they have reason to boast in all of their pedigree and all that they do, he says, I the more. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, the tribe of Benjamin, on and on and on. And Paul is saying, I can relate to you. I know what it's like to be where you're at. I was there too. What a way to start your testimony. So when you begin to talk to people, you can relate to them and say, you know what, I was, I was looking for answers. I, w- I was lost. I tried this. I tried that. And none of these things seemed to satisfy him. That's where Paul is going with this. All of it failed. He didn't have a personal relationship with God. All Paul had was religiosity. Let's keep on reading here. Verse 3. I am indeed a Jew, brought up in this city, at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictest of our father's law, and I was zealous toward God as you all are today. Notice that little as. It's a comparison clause, but it's meant to conciliate. It's meant to reach over and to extend sort of an olive branch. What he's saying is, I'm not condemning you. I'm not pointing my finger at you. I was just as you are, and I was just as zealous. In fact, I took it a little bit further. I was obsessed with it, what Paul is saying, and it had become my idol. Paul's testimony to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14, Paul says, I was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers, and I was advancing pro copto. I remember that one, Kelly, because I thought of a helicopter, thought of you. But it meant... Paul was pro. He was going forward. The word pro-copto means to take a piece of metal and put it in a forge and heat it. And you take a hammer and you begin to beat it so that it lengthens it and it advances it. It moves it forward. And Paul is using it in Galatians as a metaphorical symbol of this is what I was doing. I was hammering out my life. I was putting it in the heat. And I was advancing. I was doing everything in my power to climb the corporate ladder in Judaism. I was so far ahead of my compatriots that I was advancing step by step. And I was in promotion mode when I was a Pharisee. I know what it's like. And none of those things ever seemed to meet the mark. Next thing we do when we share our personal testimony is we tell them about our pre-Christ life. That doesn't mean you have to go into all your explicit sins and glorify sin, 
Some people tell their testimony and it becomes a bragamony of how evil and wicked they were. <laughs> we don't need to do that. Paul didn't do that. He sort of summarized it here, doesn't he? So in verses 4 um, through 5, he tells about his pre-conversion life. So when you're sharing your testimony, it's that simple this morning. All you need to do is tell them what your life was like before you met Jesus. That's how simple it is. Paul says here, he says, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. If anybody was undeserving for grace, it would have been the Apostle Paul. I was binding, I was putting these things at people in prison. Both men and women, also the high priests, are witness with me and all the council of the elders, from whom I received letters from the brethren that went to Damascus, bringing of chains those who were in Jerusalem, that they might be punished. Paul was letting them know that he was a fellow traveler. I have been down this path and it didn't satisfy. He's also telling them that without grace... You can have religion. You can have your, I'm going to hope my good works pay my bad, and that mentality, and where does it lead to? It has devastating effects. Paul said, I had all the religion in the world, but religion did not have the power to transform a heart. This guy hated Christians. He had nothing but contempt in his heart for Christians. And he wrote the Galatians, and this is what he said to the Galatians. They were hearing that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And I love this little phrase. And they glorified God in me. A changed life. Religion is powerless to give you a heart of love. Religion is powerless to give you compassion. Religion is powerless to give you self-control. And Paul is saying, I had all those things, but it never changed me. And every one of you have that same testimony. Whatever you were in Christ, I remember the things that I was chasing. I remember the things that I was pursuing. I was an athlete, and I was so empty without Christ. I remember sitting on a bus. I just broke a neat record. I knew my name was probably going to be in the newspaper the next morning. And I was thinking in my mind, 10 years from now, there's not a single person who's ever going to remember that I was at this track meet. No one's going to remember that I had my name in the newspaper and somebody's going to come along one day and break this record and my name will never be there. God was showing me how empty I was. I remember going home, and I'm sharing a little bit of my testimony, my pre-conversion testimony, and I was playing in my backyard, and I was looking at the stars. And I was thinking how vast this universe is, how complex it is, how beautiful it is, and I felt so insignificant. And my grandmother then sent me a Bible, and the light shined into my life. You see, we sometimes think we're seeking God, but all the time God is seeking us. 
And that's what Paul found. Paul thought he was seeking God. He thought he was a godly man by what he was doing. He had his own agenda, his own way of doing things. But in verse 6, it says, Now it happened as I journeyed, God got a hold of me. John chapter 6, verse 44 says this, No man can come to the Father unless I draw him. We come to God because God is drawing us. How does God do that? I think God uses our conscience. God uses our circumstances. God uses the Holy Spirit. And God uses his word. But I don't come to him because I was so smart that I figured out that I needed Jesus. I was doing it my own way. And Paul says, I was doing it my own way, and I was lost as a goose in a hailstorm. I don't know how lost that is, but he was lost. And God was seeking him out and brought him to his knees. God has a way of humbling us, doesn't he? Share that in your testimony. The devastating effects of religion without grace and our pride and our sin and our rebellion needs to be broken. Paul had placed all of his faith in his good works and his merit. I'm going to just turn over to 1 Timothy and just read about what Paul says about his former life. Probably very familiar with this passage of scripture already. But in 1 Timothy, he tells about his life being a pattern for other people who are going to believe and how long-suffering and how patient our God is when he's drawing people. Verse 13, Paul says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, I obtained mercy. There's not a single person who's outside of the mercy of Christ and Paul said that my rebellion and my pride had to be broken. This encounter with Christ that Paul had, it brought great humility to him. There was the conviction of sin. Saul, why are you persecuting me? I remember sharing a verse with a guy in Ireland, and he never thought of himself as an anti-Christian or an anti-Christ, he just thought of himself as a good guy, as most people do. And I shared a verse with him from Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus said this, If you are not with me, you're against me. If you're not gathering for me, you are actually scattering. And Paul came to the realization that he was persecuting the person of Jesus. He wasn't vocally saying, I hate Christ, I'm against Christ, I'm scattering. And there's this realization that drops in our life that I am not with Christ. I am not a part of his family. There's this conviction of sin that Paul says, that, that Paul had here. Paul says that he spoke back to this voice, and he said, what shall I do, Lord? When you come to Christ, there comes to this point where you understand your sin, 
You understand that your sin is against a holy God, and there is a submission and a surrender. Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord didn't give Paul a list of works to have his sins forgiven. He had an agenda for his life. Yes, he had a calling for his life. But that's not what was going to save him. What saved him was calling on the name of the Lord. And then his good works followed. You and I have been chosen in Christ unto good works. That God has preordained that we should walk in them. And God had a plan for Paul's life. That plan isn't that much different for our lives. God wants us to know his will. That's what he wants us to know. He wants us to know. He wants us to see the just one. He wants us to have a personal relationship with this just one, to know him. God wants us to hear his voice. When you and I open up the pages of scripture, we hear his voice. He wants us to know him. He wants us to see him. He wants us to hear him in order that he might use us. There was repentance in Paul's life, a humbling, an acknowledgement when he said, Lord, what shall I do? He was led by the hand, humbled. Can you imagine this man who had letters from the high priest to go to Damascus? He thought he had all authority and God had brought him so low that now he had to be led by the hand. Had to have a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him to forgive him or to bring him a message of forgiveness. Conversion is not through human means. It's through calling on the name of the Lord. It's acknowledgement that you have a belief in the deity and the sufficiency of Christ. That's what salvation is. You're acknowledging Jesus as Lord. You're acknowledging him as divine God of all gods and that he alone is sufficient to save. How simple a testimony is, isn't it? You bridge that gap with the unbeliever. You relate to him. You talk about the things that you and, or she and you have in common. You bring down that barrier. You explain your pre-conversion life, what your life was like without Christ. The miracle of meeting Jesus and how he alone cleanses for sin. And what we do from there on is our post-Christian life. After meeting Jesus, he wants us to know him, to see him, to hear his voice. One of my favorite testimonies, I'm going to close on this, is the testimony of an Irish woman named Peggy O'Neill. Now, I came across her testimony when I lived in Ireland, and she wrote out her testimony, and she followed pretty much what Paul did. She was writing to her audience, Irish Catholics. She had a passion for them. She had a brokenness for them. And so in her testimony, she says, I was raised in this little village in County Clare, a seaside village called Valley Bunyan. She was one of 13 children. She talked about her parents taking her to Mass every single day. She said, we had the rosary, and we knew every name for Mary. And we prayed to her. We venerated her. We had a statue of St. Therese in our home. And I would kneel by that statue, and I would pray. 
I wanted to serve God with all my heart. But I never felt like I knew him. I never felt like I had ever done enough. So at the age of 17, Peggy O'Neill went into the convent. She said, this will be my answer. I will dedicate my life to this church and to serve Christ through this church. For 50 years, 50 years, she served as a sister of mercy. She came home to Ireland. She was teaching in a school in England. And she's writing this testimony because she is trying to do everything she can to reach her audience. Catholic people who are praying to an idol, doing rosary beads, going to Mass, doing everything they, they can and hoping to have a relationship. And she is showing this connection and she's saying, I was zealous for God just as my own countrymen are. But there was something missing. And God had to open her eyes. She came home to Ireland and she came back to her little village of Ballybunion. She came back in the 1990s. She had left back in the 1930s, hadn't been back to Ireland. Ireland was a different country. Half of the country no longer went to Mass. The other women were Catholic in name only. And some of them didn't believe anything. And she was so distraught. And she saw her nephew reading a Bible. And she was so excited. And she sat down and she says, what are you reading? And he began to explain it to her. And she realized he understands the Bible better than I do. He says, Aunt Peggy, I've left the Catholic Church. And her mind is thinking, what in the world have you done? There's no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. And he told her that Jesus has paid it all on the cross. He took her to one verse, Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. At the age of 73, serving in a convent for 50 years of her life, she bowed her head with her nephew and said, Jesus, come and save me. Her testimony is so simple. Your testimony is so simple and it is so profound. The maniac of Gadara, in Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 5, I'll get it right. He had no theological training, did he? He had spent maybe one hour with Jesus had no New Testament but he had a real encounter with Jesus he wanted to get in the boat and Jesus says go home to your friends go to the people around you you tell them that the Lord has had mercy that's all you and I have to do God had mercy on me. 
God showed me compassion. The woman at the well, the same story. She only knew Jesus for one conversation. And what did she do? She went into the town and she found the man and she said, Come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. He knew me inside and out. He knew my sordid past. He knew all of my struggles. He knew all of my sin. He knew all of my shallowness. And he put his finger on my heart that I was empty. And he offered me living water. Could this be the Christ? And many of the men believed because of her testimony. He told me all things that ever I did. This morning, you have a testimony because you have met Jesus. Jesus has shown you mercy. Jesus has given you living water. And now God wants you to know him, to see him, and to hear him so that you might go to others and tell them. A simple testimony, so profound but so effective. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent Jesus to seek and to save that which is lost. Thank you that you just did not leave us to our own. But God, in your love, you have predetermined our boundaries and our dwellings so that men might seek the Lord in hopes that we might feel after you and grope and find you, though you are not far from any of us, for in you we live and have our very being. Lord, thank you that God is spirit and that our hearts and our souls can reach out to this eternal spirit God, and he can come to us wherever we're at, whenever he wants, and we can call on him, and he alone washes us and forgives us and cleanses us. God, thank you for the compassion that you showed upon us. Father, I pray today that we would just remember that we would go back to that day. We'd go back to that hour. We'd go back to that moment when we knew our sin had been forgiven. God, I pray that we will use our testimony of you working in our lives weekly and daily just to start conversations with people and bring them into a knowledge of the living Savior. Thank you, Lord, that God, that you use the simple things in a profound way to affect others. Lord, thank you that we have a testimony of what Jesus has done for us. God, give us confidence that when we are sharing what you have done, people are hearing about Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.